When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada. Chelsea, and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today I'm here with Spencer, and we will be talking to author Deborah Falai about her debut book, Blood Scion. Inspired by myths and legends rooted in the Nigerian and Yoruba culture, this is the story of Sloan, who at 15 is conscribed into the child army of the ruthless colonizers, the Lucys. One wrong move could mean swift and sudden death for any of the members. But Sloane has even more reasons to fear. She is a scion with the power to conjure fire, and her very existence is punishable by death. Needless to say, this is a fast-paced and epic story, and Spencer and I are both so excited to have Deborah here and to get to ask her all about it. We have so many questions. And so, let's get started. Hey, Deborah, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> We always like to start with asking our authors if you could just give our listeners a brief introduction to you and to your debut book. Okay, of course. So my name is Deborah Fly, and I'm the author of the upcoming book, Blood Sign. So Blood Sign is a YA fantasy which is inspired by my Nigerian Yoruba mythology and the war on children. And the story follows a 15-year-old girl named Sloan who on her birthday gets drafted into the very military that's hunting her people. So obviously she would do anything to serve a brutal military experience and also take down the army from within, even if it means becoming the very monster she hates. Awesome. Deborah, we loved reading your book. It really was a thrill. And I read online somewhere that you had been working on this book for like over 10 years. As a fellow Canadian, I know that there can be additional barriers for authors trying to get published outside of the United States. So we just wanted to start by asking you if you can share a little bit about your path to publication and writing this book and how it feels now to finally see your debut novel going out into the world. Oh, my God, of course. Yeah. So obviously, yes, I have been working on Blood Sign for 10 years. It's crazy because the book comes out March next month. And that's like exactly the 10 year spot that I've been working on Blood Sign. So it's a little bit of like a weird full circle moment for me. But when I started, like this was back in 2012. And I had just wrapped up a YA contemporary that will probably never see the light of day. <laughs> but yes, I then got this idea for this story about a young girl who was descended from the Orisha gods. And at this time, there wasn't 
really any stories or books that were set in like a non-Western culture or like non-Western setting. So I struggled with that a lot in the beginning. Like, could I write this? Would people want to read this? But, you know, I pushed through because I obviously really loved the story and I really loved exactly what it was that I was trying to write. So I started drafting this book in 2012. And I think in the beginning when I was drafting it, I didn't really understand the full capacity even of what I was writing. Like I knew that it was fantasy and I knew that I loved the story, but in a sense, I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know, like, what do you have to do? Oh, you have to query or you have to reach out to agents. Like I had no idea about all those things. And I did struggle in the beginning with, okay, I'm Canadian and publishing really mostly is set in the U.S. So it's like, how does this work? Do I have to move to the States to get published? Uh, But I was thinking about all of those back then, but I didn't really focus on it. Obviously, the story took 10 years to write because the world kept expanding. The plot kept expanding. The characters kept expanding. And I felt like I was also growing as a writer in those years that it took to work on the story. So fast forward to 2017, and I found out about this program called Pitch Wars, basically like this organized thing where you get to be mentored by like people who are in the industry and after about two months of revisions then there's this agent showcase so I was like oh this sounds interesting at this point now I'm getting into like the book community because I didn't even know that existed (laughs) so (laughs) I'm getting into it and I'm finding out that okay you know it doesn't really matter where you're from what you're doing anyone can basically get an agent and you can get and not like you can get published but really Anyone can get an agent, and it doesn't really matter where you're located. So that made me feel good. And then I obviously sent my work out for pitch wars, submitted, and luckily I was picked as one of the mentees. And we worked, along with my mentors, worked on this book for about two and a half months, and then had the agent showcase after, which a lot of agents were really receptive to Blood Sign, which was really big for me. Like at this point, it seemed five years of working on this book and I'm like wait so you guys actually want to read this so you guys actually want this book so that was really great I ended up not really sending it to anyone at the time because I was also getting married in 2018 so that took up like a lot of my time and then I was on my honeymoon basically when I had finally sent about five chapters out to like a handful of agents and Everyone was just so excited and like receptive about it. And I went on, I signed with my first agent at the time. Shortly after, we revised the book together, went on submission, and the book sold. So it's very much a weird path to publication because it's not the traditional send your query, get your agent, revise with your agent, and then go on submission. It was When it finally started to happen, everything was moving at such a lightning speed. At one point, I was like, can we just take a breather? Can we just, like, take a moment to slow down? Because everything moved really, really fast. But my path to publication wasn't the traditional way, but it was a way that definitely worked for me, and I'm very much excited about the outcome. Yeah, I love hearing those stories, too, from all different authors, because I feel like to some extent there is no, like, correct way to get a book published. There are so Mm -hmm. many different avenues, and I've heard of Pitch Wars before and have read 
many books that have come out of that. And I love that that was something that worked for you as well. And I think also just hearing from someone who's outside of the United States is really going to be inspiring for other people looking to write books who are like, <laughs> I don't want to move to New York City. Is that an option? That was definitely me at the time. And I think it's so weird because I think that when you go on Twitter and you kind of become a part of the book community, you start to realize that there's a lot of other people in your shoes, people who have the same questions, people who are like, how do I go about getting published? What do I need to do? And all these things. I do wish more information was available for people who are trying to come into like the industry. But I see that a lot more people are being more vocal about these things and they're talking about it more like, okay, these are the things you need to do. These are the things you don't necessarily need to do this. You can be anywhere in the world, you know, as long as you have a good book. And, you know, you're resourceful in the sense where it's like you're able to search for a good agent and whatnot. That's really all you need to get started. Yeah, I love that. And you definitely had a good book. I am not surprised at all that people were so excited for it. I wanted to talk a little bit about, we kind of both mentioned in our introductions that this book is inspired by myths and legends from your Nigerian Yoruba culture and heritage. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience drawing from those myths and how they informed the world that you built and also how it was for you personally and that this is a culture that's very close to you, putting that into this fictionalized fantasy world. Right. No, that's a great question. So I grew up in Nigeria. I was 12 when I moved to Canada. And I think growing up in Nigeria, because I was there for like a little while a lot of that stayed with me. A lot of the stories that my grandmother would usually tell me in the evenings, a lot of the movies and like just everything about the cultural aspect of how I grew up of my childhood really stayed with me when I moved to Canada. And so for me, the Orisha thing is something that's always been just incredibly fascinating for me. Like, Coming here and learning about, you know, other gods like the Zeus and like, you know, the Greek gods and like the Norse mythology. In my head, I'm always like, wait, there's the Orisha mythology. This exists and this is just as incredible as this. So I felt like for a long time I was waiting for someone to be like, here's the book. Here's the Orisha god. Here's the mythology around it. And that never happened. So when I decided to dive into the story, I was like, well, I mean, this is something that I really love. This is an idea that I've been waiting for. It was easy to just be like, this is what I'm going to focus on. Like, this is the story and this is a mythology that I'm going to write. And I think at the time, too, it's like you're going into publishing at the time and you're reading these books. And I think, you know, a lot of BIPOC authors, we talk about representation, that means so much to me because growing up, I never saw myself represented in stories. I never saw my world or my culture come together in these stories or characters who look like me come together in these stories to like make me feel seen. So in writing Blood Sign, that was also something that was very, very important for me. Like I'm thinking, okay, if an African, a Nigerian, a black kid is going to pick up this book, I want them to open up those pages and read those mythology and read these stories and be like, wait a minute, this is my culture. You know, oh, I know these things that she's talking about. Oh, I'm familiar with this. Like, I, I wanted that. And I think also just because my mom, she was a teacher back in Nigeria, and she actually studied Yoruba. So that was like what she went to school for. That was what she taught. So for me, I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to be right. 
I need my mom to one day pick up this book and look at me and say, you got it right. You did it right. And I had that moment. I had it. I had it. When she finally got to read the art, she was just losing her mind throughout every season. She's like, why would you do this? How did you? <laughs> she, was, she was going crazy. But then she finally gets to the point where she finished the book. And to see her being excited about talking about it to her friends, anyone who could listen, like she will stop strangers and be like, my daughter's book is coming out. And, you know, just so, so much pride. And I felt as though I was, this was the inspiration back then. This was why I chose to write about this culture. This was what I wanted to get out of it. And it meant so much to me. And it was such a personal thing for me. And even now, you know, we're seeing readers who are starting to connect with the story, Nigerian readers and bloggers who are starting to connect with it. And I hear from them all the time. And they're just like, wait, you did this. Like you went there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> that's what it was for me. Like, that's why I settled on the mythology. That's why I wanted to write the book. And that's really what I got out of it. I love that story about your mom <laughs> reading your book. That is fantastic. That's how you know you've done a good job when moms uh, in support. <laughs> I really love this world that you created. Chelsea and I were talking before the podcast, and it really does feel rich and unique. And it was so wonderful the way that you were able to incorporate so many cultural elements. As well, it also felt like a familiar YA fantasy world and even pulled in science fiction elements as well. The Lucy's army in particular have these advanced technologies. And so this world that you built was really large and expansive, very rich. Did you have other influences from other young adult books when you were writing this story? Did you always know it was going to be young adult? Were you trying to pull from science fiction and fantasy? Is that something that you were aware of when you were writing? Yeah, <laughs> I have a funny story connected to this. That's such a great question. This is like an exclusive at this point. <laughs> when Blood Science first started, it was strictly science fiction. It wasn't fantasy. The world was supposed to exist out of space. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting. Because, you know, at the time, we had dystopian books that were coming out, Divergent, Hunger Games, and all these so for my thing, I was like, well, how cool would it be if the world was over? Which really, that's the backstory behind the Lucy's. Like the old world got destroyed, right? So I was like, how cool would it be if the world was over? And now everyone, like these elites, like the Lucy's basically, are now leaving out of space. They're living in like this spaceship. I spent months trying to understand how far would you need to go to build a spaceship? I was researching what it means to terraform the moon and i was like okay at this point you've lost it like at this point you, you need to you need to come back down to earth because this is not working so when i pivoted into fantasy finally which is the best decision i could ever make for this book i was still kind of like holding on to the sci-fi elements right so i was like well i don't want to lose the fact that they have advanced weaponry i don't want to lose the fact that they have airplanes I don't want to lose the fact that they have these things, like these big technology in no world. And so when I decided to move to fantasy and I decided to set the book in this fictional Nigeria and that the Lucy's would come from the old world, which is a representation of the Western world being ruined, and they would come to Africa, like this fictional Africa, and settle there, I thought to myself, 
it would be interesting if that happened in real life because there's a disparity i want to say between like even growing up in nigeria there's a disparity between places in nigeria that are more so you know poor areas don't have electricity they don't really have technology like they don't really have these things but then you go to the rich part of the cities and then you see the lights and you see the generators and you see the cars and you know you see a lot more so technically i was like playing on that and it made sense to me to have the lucys hold on to their technologies as they're migrating to this new continent but then if the people there are still very much they're not technologically savvy but then you have the Lucy's who are. So I wanted to play with that a little bit. And the other thing was I'd watched the movie 2012. And I usually say, I'm like, Blood Sign is sort of like the part two of what happens once they arrived in Africa. You know how the movie ended with like, oh, they're headed to the Cape Town or whatever. So I was like, well, okay, this is technically what happened. So maybe the directors of 2012 can get in touch with me if they wanted a part two. <laughs> to the movie but it made sense to me they had like their big ships and all these things it makes sense that science fiction aspect of it and the technology aspect of it was still going to be something that's going to be in the book even if they were to migrate to like a new place so that's how i blended that together <laughs> i love that story so much that is incredible i also love the idea of like just doing so much research and being like, I am down a rabbit hole now. <laughs> I gotta pull I just went back down up. the rabbit hole with that. I did. I had pages and pages and pages of notes on terraforming. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, no idea. I love the blend that you did settle on. I think the science fiction and technology elements feel really important to the story, and it does give. Spencer and I were talking a bit about how it felt not dystopian, but you could see the dystopian elements of it, of mm -hmm. like the world ending and getting a new regime in place and how that comes together. And having that technological difference between the two groups of people makes that so much clearer. But I also, I did want to talk about the magic system. I'm really glad you included the fantasy element because <laughs> I love the magic system. Ashe, such a cool and really interesting element of both who Sloan is and also how this world works and functions. Did Ashe stem from the legends that you were using as inspiration or was that something that you came up with sort of separately as a way to empower her? And also, how did you land on fire as the, like, Ashe that she was able to yeah. use? Yeah, I mean, no, every part of the magic system is grounded in, like, the Yoruba mythology. And that was very important for me. If I was going to pull from this mythology, I wanted it to be as true to the source as possible. So every part, obviously, there's leeways and the things that you do creatively, but the groundwork of it was very much rooted in, like, the mythology of it. So in the Yoruba mythology, we've got these Orisha pantheon, and no one even knows how many Orisha there is. I know the ones that I heard about and the ones that I do love, and I think those were the ones that I pulled into the story. But some of the other ones, because 16 is a very important number to, like, Yoruba mythology as well. They did believe that there were 16 kingdoms that were branched out, that were basically created by the Orishas when they came to the Yoruba land to build what I called in the book the ancient kingdoms. So I was like, okay, well, if this is what it is, then I need 16 gods. But I only knew nine. <laughs> so I was like, 
time to go researching. <laughs> Luckily, I had my mom, who was also very helpful in that department, told me about some of like the lesser known Orisha gods and goddesses. So that was very helpful. And then with the fire specifically, Shungo is my favorite Orisha god. I would liken him to like Thor, but in the Yoruba culture. So he's this big embodiment of a god that spits out fire and he's just so temperamental. He's so feisty and he's got all these different wives and all these, he's just all over the place. So I absolutely love him because I feel like he's just such a big representation of fighting for culture. For me, when I think about the Yoruba culture and I think about the Yoruba mythology, I think about him. So when it came time to write Sloane into the story and build this story around her, I knew from the beginning that I wanted her to be a descendant of the god Shungo. And I just thought it was also kind of cool because Shungo is sort of like that male embodiment. So I thought, well, how cool would it be to have a female take on this role and do these things and be just as angry as he was and have this fire because he's the god of fire and lightning and thunder. But I focused mostly on the fire part because I also just knew that the rage and the anger that Sloane was going through in the book, it made more sense to have that power specifically be fire for her. So that's how I was able to bridge those two together. That's really a wonderful insight. That's really interesting. Another part of this world, as fantastical as it is, it's also dark and dangerous and yeah. scary at times. And one of the things that was really gripping as a reader is it just felt like things could go wrong at any time in this world. And so I was always kind of on edge when reading. <laughs> you don't shy away from addressing some of the real horrors of war and colonialism. Of course, Sloane herself is a child soldier and a lot of the narrative centers around her being conscripted into a whole army of children soldiers. How did you navigate writing really violent scenes and doing all of that for a young adult audience? When the book started in 2012, obviously I knew that I wanted to write about my culture. I wanted to write about this girl who was grappling with the loss of her identity and her culture. But I didn't really know what that was. What was the conflict at the root of it? And then in 2014, we had a situation in Nigeria that created this huge global frenzy called Bring Back Our Girls, because these young girls had gotten kidnapped in Nigeria, and a lot of people started to speak really outwardly about it, and it just turned into this huge thing. And I remember being in university, my psychology class at the time, and we were kind of talking about this, and people were sort of looking at me like, oh, you're Nigerian, how do you feel? And I was like, well, you know, you have these things, and... They cause these global conversations. But for me, it was a lot more personal than that. Because reading the stories about these girls and you're seeing their age, and it's like, okay, these are 12-year-olds, these are 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds. I was 12, you know, when I was growing up there. I was warned to be careful when you're going out against kidnapping and whatnot. Nigeria is such a beautiful place, and it's got such a vibrant culture. But, you know, these horrors are still something that's, like, very much prevalent. So in me wanting to understand exactly what it was, I think that was at that point what turned me towards doing this research on child soldiers, doing this research on child brides, you know, suicide bombers, and just sort of like understanding, okay, they've taken these girls. What's their life like? What's going to happen to them? And not just girls, you know, they took boys too. What happens to them? So a lot of this conversation at the time that I was having with myself was wanting to understand that. And during that research on child soldiers and this child brides and just the war on children, 
at that point, I remember when I landed on it, I read this one specific story and I was like, this is it. This is the conflict. This is the inner conflict that she's going through that also spreads itself outward. But I knew that if I was going to write this, it was going to be very dark. So I was worried about that. Can you do this in YA? <laughs> you know, it's like we had Hunger Games, right? And a lot of people, as much as it changed the fate of YA forever, but a lot of people still had a huge problem with it because of the darkness. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this is taking it a step further. <laughs> you know, we're getting a bit darker here but i didn't want to change it to adult i knew that she was going to be 15 and i knew that this was going to be her story and i think it's okay to talk about these things in ya because in a sense it's like you're shedding light on something that some readers might not know i didn't really know too much about child soldiers until i did my research this book isn't like a it's not the child soldier book you know it's not what's going to help you learn about child soldiers. But I just feel like bringing something that is happening in our world to this day into YA and sort of expanding on it in a way and writing about it in a way that people can understand and sympathize with these children, I thought that was very important. But I also didn't want to romanticize this aspect of the story. So I was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, we're going to make it dark and it's going to be brutal and it's going to be painful. And whoever can read it should read it. But I also understand that it might be too much for some people. I had to be okay with that because it was more important for me to get the story out there than to fluff it down. No, absolutely. And I think anyone who might be listening to this and is wondering if this book is for you, I do think pretty early on in the story you see how brutal the plot is going to be. And I do think... <laughs> I think you'll know pretty soon whether this book is for you or not. I really appreciated that you didn't pull punches because I think this is such a serious and important topic. And as I was writing the intro for the podcast, I like wrote Sloan is 15 and I just had another moment where I was like, oh yeah, everything that happened to this girl, she was 15. It's insane. And yet it is not entirely fantasy. You know, it is something that is still happening in our world and something we need to keep our eyes open to. You know, speaking of the Lucy's army, they were really interesting. I mean, brutal and intense and awful, but also interesting antagonists to the story. You know, they're clearly invaders and colonizers. I was very interested in how you developed them. They're a very important part of Sloane's story, you know, and a part mm -hmm. of her world, even mm -hmm. though they are so evil. There were, like, moments where I was like, People cannot get more evil, and then they did. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. I was wondering how you developed them and if there were any, like, historical examples that you were referencing or places that you were pulling from to sort of develop their society and their world as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really was just looking at Nigeria's history and just also Africa's history in developing the Lucys. I thought it was a bit interesting the moment when I knew that, okay, this story was going to be based on, like, these elites who are trying to escape the ruin of their world and they're going somewhere else, right? And at first they were supposed to go to the moon or whatever, but then it's like me deciding to bring them to a fictional Africa, I was like, well, that's interesting because this happened already. They did go there already. They did colonize the place already. They did steal and take and, you know, do all these things already. So... I wanted to cycle back to that, even though this is sort of like 
a shade of the future. It's in a sense futuristic. I was like, well, if they were to go back again, what would it look like? Would people fight back? Would they try to stop what had happened in the past? How could I write my own story about colonization and put them at the helm of these things, doing these things, not even just from their perspective, but like from the perspective of what it is they're doing, what legacy are they leaving behind? At the time, too, I had read Amanda Sternberg. I believe that's how you say her name. She had made this YouTube video about cultural appropriation and just the things that as black people we are questioned about. But then it's like when other people do them, it's seen as this epic game changing thing. So for me, it's like I wanted to really bring that into the story. And I think that goes hand in hand with colonization because here you go on this land that's not yours, thriving on the land that's not yours, killing the people who own the land and taking from them. But then it's like you're also dressing like them. You're thriving on their land. And meanwhile, like they're forced into hiding. So that was very interesting for me. And I really, really, really wanted to explore that. And I think that's more so where that came from in grounding the Lucys as these colonizers and these invaders on this land and then taking it a step further and you guys are not just on the land but now you're also killing these people right so what does that look like i think that's part of the world building and the conflict that i wanted to pull into the story and i just ran with it really you mentioned themes of cultural appropriation and what i found really interesting in your book as well was this idea that Sloane as a son has to hide so much of herself. She has to hide her magical abilities, her ashe. She has to hide as well, though, her culture and her heritage. And a big part of the narrative as well is just her trying to uncover truths about her history and learn more about her culture. And I don't want to spoil any specific moments, but <laughs> of course, she has to try and connect back to her ancestors and things that came right. before. Was this a theme that you were really trying to incorporate or almost a message that you're trying to send to young readers about the importance of connecting back to culture and reconnecting and reclaiming? Are those all kind of ideas that you were trying oh, to absolutely. explore in the text? Absolutely. And I think it was also something very personal for me. I was writing like a Q&A recently and I was saying in it, for me, I felt like in discovering Sloan's journey, I was also sort of like discovering my own journey. And the reason why I say that is because I was 12 when I came to Canada, you know, and I brought all these cultures and these things with me. But one of the first things that happened to me when I got here, registered in like my middle school was I was told that I had to change my name because they couldn't pronounce or what is there like an easier name for us to say it's just four letters but the principal was like yeah I think she would benefit from having an English name to help her assimilate better and I'm Christian so I had like a Christian name so we're like okay it's weird but sure we'll go with Deborah and it was such a weird change immediately being called Deborah because I'm like wait who's that <laughs> no one calls me Deborah you know no one calls me that and 12 years of my life no one really called me that and now it's like Deborah 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 so I'm like wait who is this person that you guys are talking about and it was really difficult and I think the idea to connect back to your roots a lot of immigrants we go through these things where you come to a, a new place and one of the things you're warned is like be careful not to lose your culture 
when I call people back home, like my grandmother at the time, she'd tell me that, like, do you still remember how to speak Yoruba? Be careful, don't lose your culture. That warning, right? And I'm like, yes, grandma, like, I know how to speak Yoruba and whatnot. But I felt like at some point in time in being here, I was having a hard time connecting back to that root, connecting back to that culture. I felt like it maybe was something that I needed to hide, that I needed to lessen in order to fit in. And so when this book started, that's what I meant by it felt as though I was going on a journey with my character in a way because she's connecting back and reclaiming back and taking back her name. I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but I mean, we do get to a moment in the story where she does claim her last name, right? And I felt like that was just so incredibly powerful because that's what it was for me too, just claiming that and taking back that power and getting a chance to embrace your culture for the first time. So it just felt like it was a no-brainer. You know, I know a lot of authors talk about personal journeys and not knowing that they're weaving pieces of themselves into a story, but I had no idea. I guess I did, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I guess I did. And so it's like I'm just starting to see those things in the story like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I do get that. I understand that very clearly because that was also me, you know? So, yeah. Absolutely. I knew for sure that was going to happen. I knew that that was the journey that she was going to go on. And for me, it's like, if that's a message that people take out of the book, that makes me so happy. Absolutely. Reclaim everything. Reclaim your identity. (laughs) That's amazing. And that was such a powerful moment in the book, too. Like a gut punch. It is so, so powerful. And that was what I really loved about your book, too. Beyond every, like so many brutal moments in this book too but there are also these moments that just feel like really inspiring and empowering it was this like wild blend but it was so good like i can't quite explain it but um but i absolutely loved that and another element of your story i found really empowering was this kind of lack of sexism or necessarily like traditional gender roles that you might expect especially from like a militaristic society mm-hmm. like for the draft everyone gets drafted regardless of gender it also seems like anyone can sort of be or do anything regardless mm-hmm. of gender and they can hold any position and it's one of those things where you don't notice it until suddenly you're like oh wait women and everyone's doing everything everyone's there's, doing no, their thing. <laughs> there's no separation and it's so nice and refreshing when you get that i was wondering if that was for you a conscious decision as you were building the social order of this world or if it also kind of just kind of struck you where you were like oh men and women everyone's doing it no i mean i think it started with sloan really in taking her and putting her in this position to be like an embodiment of like a male god right so i was like well we're doing it. <laughs> Women can do anything, so we're going to run with it. There was no point in time when I really questioned whether or not the queen was going to be a male. She's going to be the queen, and she's just going to be crazy, and she's going to be brutal and all that. But I think it's important to show those things. We can pull from history, and we can pull from whatever, and you know, ground things in truth, but I think I've always thought it was ridiculous that women had to go through these things to get to where they are. It's like, why? we have the same heads as men like you know it's like what makes it different so yeah sure we're gonna have a military and i understand that yeah there are these gender roles and these things that come into play but i didn't really care about that i was like nah i'm not doing that i'm not holding onto that but we're not nah we're not gonna do that so i think it was more fun to have that just 
freedom between who got to do what and rather than being like oh this is male dominated or anything of that sort it's like why i think it's more fun when women are the ones excuse my language but messing things up i almost said something else but you know what i mean i think it's just more fun when women are the ones at the helm of everything just doing these things and can you imagine olympia as a male i think that would have made him boring (laughs) it would have been boring so yeah gender roles definitely wasn't something i was thinking about when i was building the world yeah and especially in terms of i mean the fantasy and science fiction genres that really sadly unfortunately have a history of excluding women and even people in color in so many ways Mm -hmm. your book was so refreshing and i think it did wonderful work to expand those genres and i think readers are going to see things that they haven't seen before that are going to be exciting and meaningful Thank you. Um, thank you for writing it. <laughs> it's going to matter a lot to a lot of people. It also made me think of other fantastic works of science and fiction coming from other Canadian writers right now. It made me think of books like Iron Widow, Blood Like Magic, and The Marrow Thieves that I know our readers are familiar with that have come out recently. And so as we get close to wrapping up, ask you about the different trends that you're noticing in science fiction and fantasy. And what would you like to see more of going forward? Where would you like to see these genres go? Yeah, so I haven't read Iron Widow or Lizelle, but I absolutely adore Lizelle. And I've heard such incredible things about Iron Widow. Like, I can't wait to pick that book up. But I think those are, like, the important things that we're seeing in fantasy. And I love, absolutely love this trend of not only diversity when it comes to culture, but also diversity when it comes to who's at the forefront of these stories. Who are the heroes of these stories? Who are the villains of these stories? We're not seeing the traditional white male driving the plot. We're seeing women. We're seeing women of all kinds. We're seeing everything. And I think that's just so incredible. But I do think there's still long ways to go. I love that diversity is like something that we're seeing more of now. But like, let's keep going. Because I think one of the problems that I've heard from people is I've had people who are like, oh, I absolutely love the fact that you wrote about Nigerian mythology, but I'm afraid to do that now. And I'm like, but why? Well, I want to write about the Orisha gods. Well, then go ahead, (laughs) you know? But I think there's this fear that there can only be one. And then if it's more than one, then people are like, oh, this book is stealing from this, or this book is copying from this. But no, it's not. One of the best sayings I've heard in publishing recently is people say these cultures were not a monolith. You can take a culture and write it so many different ways because it's your perspective that you're bringing into the story it's your experiences and the things that matter to you that you care about that you're pulling into the story so all of these books no matter what even if they're all grounded in the same culture they will always be different they will always have that unique aspect to them so i think that's what i would love to see more of let's get rid of this whole idea that there can only be one And let's pull everything in because I think we can read all of these books and still not get enough. And these are such incredible stories. Every time I read one, I'm just like, I want to know more. I go searching for like, okay, what's the next book of that's reminiscent of this? Because I want to know more about the culture. I want to know more about the inspirations and how did you pull on these things? So, yeah, absolutely. I think we need to keep going with diversity and we need to keep going with these stories because there's not enough of it, in my opinion. No, for sure. And I just think of if every author who ever wanted to write about Greek mythology was like, eh, there already is a book about it. I don't like. 
an entire genre that wouldn't exist. It's true, yeah. Because, but yeah, we have that idea, and this book absolutely made me want to read more about these gods and different interpretations and different retellings. I will definitely be looking for more of these for sure. <laughs> um, but it also does make us ask, and we'll sort of wrap things up here, but we'd really love to know, are we going to get more Blood Scion books? Are there more oh, books coming yes, in this series? Of course. <laughs> Good. Okay, thank you. This is a sequel that's scheduled for next year, 2023. Yeah, someone has to think we're in 2021. No. It's 2022. There's a sequel scheduled for 2023, and I am currently working on it, and it's it, it, it gets crazier. <laughs> it gets crazier, more painful, more heartache, obviously, more twists. I'm enjoying it. I think what I'm loving the most about it is just seeing, once again, just how expensive everything is. You think, oh, this is like the story, and you think, oh, this is who this person is, but then it's like, wait a minute, actually... There's a whole backstory here and things that people don't know yet. And I think I'm just really excited. One of the things I've gotten a lot out of is, are we going to get to know more about like the ancient kingdoms? Are we going to get to know more about the Orishas? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to, I guess, people finishing book one and then obviously looking forward to book two. That both makes me so happy and very nervous to hear that there's like, <laughs> it's going to get crazier. <laughs> it gets crazier, definitely. <laughs> I'll promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And Deborah, for our listeners who want to obviously follow along and be aware of updates and be aware of news around the release of your new book, where can they follow you online? I'm on Instagram. I absolutely love Instagram. You will see me on Instagram all day, every day. Deborah Fly at Deborah Fly. I'm on Twitter at DFly. Just mostly updates on Twitter, but I try to pop in there once in a while. And I'm still trying to learn my way through TikTok. <laughs> which is just this foreign land that I still haven't gotten a hold of yet, but I am slowly dipping my toes into TikTok at Deborah Fly. So yes, yeah, just all those three platforms for sure. I think there's going to be some great book talk material coming <laughs> out of this book for sure. I can see it already. Thank you so much. I feel like we could keep talking to you, but we, we got to wrap things up. I know. So much fun. Thank you so much for Thank being here you. and for talking about your book. We are so excited for more people to get to read it, and I, like, really want to talk to more people about this book. I think it's one of those ones where I, like, I want to talk to people about it. So I'm very excited for everyone to get their hands on it and to read it. Thank you for having me. This was incredible, honestly. I get nervous when I'm starting these things, but then it's like you get right into it, and you guys are just incredible. So thank you so much for having me. I really had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your book with us. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Spencer. Thank you, guys. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We are at BookmarksYA. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you liked the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at LuckyBookmark. And you can follow Spencer at YA Canada Books. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.